everybody, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Clyde with us today. He is the founder and director of Onasis International. Welcome. Thank you so much, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to, to, to participating in the podcast. Dr. Clyde, why don't you tell us about what you're doing with Onasis International? Wow. So we're, we're doing a lot, actually. Uh, so <clears throat> we do a lot of educational consulting, um, both domestically and internationally. Um, so, but primarily what we're looking at now is developing programs, uh, particularly for uh, traditionally underserved uh, groups here in, in, in the U.S. Uh, some of the larger contracts that we have are for developing programs and mentoring programs uh, for African-American, specifically African-American uh, students uh, here, in, here in Northern California. Okay. So how many students do you serve in your programs? Total or in, in sort of specific groups? Uh, in total overall. Total, we're, we're nearing about the 100, uh, 100 student mark. Um, oh. Now, there's only about two people uh, that are working for Onasis International right now. It's myself and one of my uh, consultants. Um, so there's <laughs> quite a bit of work to do. Um, so, you know, we don't want to necessarily overburden ourselves. What's the age range of the students that you're working with? So we work from um, about 10 years old to around 20. Uh, so some of the work that we do is around helping parents uh, get students prepared for higher education. Um, you know, that's from 10, uh, from, from 10 years old. Um, you know, getting them in activities around uh, getting them prepared for high school as well as getting them prepared for college. Now, what I mean by getting them prepared for high school is making sure that they're taking the right courses, uh, making sure that they're um, involved in the right activities, um, and things of that nature. Once they're in high school, there's, there's a specific course of classes that they need to take to graduate. Um, here in California, I'm not sure how it is <laughs> in other places, but here in California, we have what we call A through G. And A through G is a list of courses that uh, students are required to take uh, in order to uh, be eligible for uh, our California State University and our University of California system. So I think 100 students and two staff is quite a lot of work. What are some of the issues and barriers? What do you know, those issues, barriers, things that mean that they need your support? So what kind of things are you trying to work on with them? Well, so I think one of the hardest things is helping, to student, helping students navigate uh, education because most of the students that we support are students from non-traditional backgrounds. So what I mean by that is most of the students we support come from families that uh, traditionally don't have education as a tool uh, for social mobility. Uh, so specifically not first-generation students, so students who are the first in their family to go to higher education or pursue higher education. Wow, so their parents haven't been to higher education, they haven't been to college. Wow, so this is why you work with the parents and the families as well, wherever possible? Absolutely, absolutely. So, and some of the challenges there is, you know, I don't know how familiar people are with working or supporting adults uh, or, or teaching uh, classes with adults. I mean, I've served, served as a professor uh, teaching some, some adults um, and it's very different. So teaching an adult college student 
differs a lot in a lot of ways uh, than teaching a traditional college age student uh, because you know adults come with life experiences. Uh, I don't want to say people are set in their ways, but they have an understanding of the world that shapes the way in which they engage. Uh, whereas traditional high uh, traditional college age students, uh, they may not have as much experience with the world, you know, with work or you know other things like that. Um, so the way in which they engage education would be very different. Is it exclusively African American students and families? No. No, so we work with a range, but um, you know, for the population and the grants that we receive, so the the grant money that we receive shapes the way in which we engage students. And uh, the latest grants that we've received have been for African American students, but it's not necessarily um, it's, it's not exclusive to African Americans. I'd love for you to tell us about your doctorate. What was your topic and how you did it? Okay, uh, so <clears throat> uh, I'll start off by telling you a little bit about myself. Um, I am a first-generation college student, meaning I'm the first in my family to go to college. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was a journey in itself, like sort of figuring out uh, what higher education meant. Um, because, again, I think oftentimes when we talk about education, we speak of college specifically like this thing that people understand. But if you've never experienced it, if you don't have people around you that have experienced it, um, it's sort of like saying, mm. oh, you know, you're going to go to the moon tomorrow. You know, it's mm. a completely foreign place. It's a completely foreign thing. Um, and you don't know what to expect. So when I got to hire, when I got to college, I was a football player, you know, I, American football, because <laughs> I know football means different things in different places. I was an American football player. So I was fortunate enough to receive a football scholarship and you know, part of being on a football scholarship is you have to stay eligible. Um, so I had supports around me and all those things to help me navigate. Now, I can imagine how difficult uh, it is for students without that. Um, so for undergrad, what I studied was ethnic studies. Specifically, I studied human development. How do we become who we are? I did some work in, in the community. Uh, and I always tell the story of this one young lady, and it sort of resonates with me. Excuse me. She was mean. She would throw chairs. She would fight. She would curse you out. You know, at the drop <laughs> of a mean. <laughs> so we worked with this young lady, and we found out that she was the oldest in her family. Her father had lost his job, and the weight of the household was placed on her shoulders. So she was expected to carry some of the burden of, you know, paying bills and things like that. Um, so we worked with her and found her a job. This is while I was a this is before right after I finished uh, my undergraduate studies. We worked with her, helped her find a job, and all of a sudden her personality changed. A lot of that burden that was on her was lifted. So for my master's, what I studied was how education either helps us or inhibits us from becoming who we are. Mm -hmm. um, specifically for that study, I looked at Asian Pacific Island students, so API students. Um, that work led me to Japan. I taught in Japan uh, for a couple of years. Uh, I taught critical thinking. I did a couple intercultural communications programs uh, and the like. But for my dissertation, what I ended up studying was myself. Um, because I think that, you know, when I, when I was pursuing education, uh, doctorate programs, one of the things that my mentors told me was make sure that when you're 
when you're choosing your course to study, that it's something that resonates with you. So I chose to study essentially myself. So I studied first generation students or students who are the first in their family to go pursue higher education. Those students who made it to the doctorate in the California State University system. All right. The California State. Yeah. The California State University system. The characteristics like who they are, uh, ethnicity, gender, age, motivations. Why did they pursue higher education and barriers? What were some of the things that prevented them uh, from being successful? Um, in higher education, and then how they got around those things. One of the most interesting things for me uh, in that study was, as an African-American male, there are some things that I was sort of, uh, I don't want to say embarrassed, but some of the things that I sort of was reserved about. And one of those things was being an athlete. athlete um, because when we think of an athlete, typically we don't think of an academic, right? So there's there's uh, general perceptions around uh, what we think when we think about certain things. And when we're thinking about an athlete, we don't think deep thinker. We don't think intellectual. We don't think somebody that's, you know, going to lead sort of the next generation. Uh, so I was a little bit, to be quite honest, I was a little bit embarrassed in some degree, uh, to some degree um, with that. However, one of the most interesting findings for my study was for first-generation students in my study, the number one thing or the most consistent thing for that population was athletics played a major role in them pursuing and being successful in higher education. And if we think about some of the tools that we uh, use to navigate athletics, they mirror what we learn in higher education or what we use to be successful in higher education. Right. So how to be a team player, mm. how to loop, how to win, how to how to work with other people. Right. Deference. You know, like so if I'm in, if I'm not a team captain, how do I look to my team captain for guidance on, you know, how to make that next big play? Um, how do I look to my coach? How do I work with my coach? So those are some of the things that were really, uh, really beneficial to first generation students uh, throughout my study. Uh, and I found that extremely interesting. Um, and I think other people did as well. So. so did that have an impact on the way that you deal with the students that you're serving now? Without question. Without question. Um, because I think, well, I think most people, uh, when, they're, when they're working with students, we have a way of understanding things. Uh, and sometimes that, I think most times, uh, that way of understanding and way of engaging students is based on our previously held notions of how students should behave. But through that study, personally, I, I had to be vulnerable <laughs> because I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was studying myself. So there was pieces of me that I needed to explore in order to sort of really uh, delve into uh, some of the things, some of the stories that were told um, uh, in my in my research. So I did a mixed method study. And what I mean by that is I did a survey of all the students that had graduated from the uh, California State University System doctorate program. And then from that, I looked at some trends and I interviewed people that represented uh, those trend, uh, those subsets uh, from throughout the state. You know, and I did looked at different regions so that way I could get sort of a regional perspective as well. Right. 
That's really interesting about these qualities, team player, being able to receive feedback, deference. What were some of the things that were most powerful when you were working with this young lady who said was mean? What were some of the things that um, really worked well with her to turn her around? So I think the biggest thing was listening and letting her lead the conversation because at the time, again, I was, I believe I was about 23 years old. So of course I knew everything. I had just finished my undergrad. You know, I had all these theories that told me everything about how the world worked. Um, and I could apply a theory to everything that, uh, you know, this per young person was going through. Um, or so I thought. I tried to work with, uh, I and my team tried to work with this young lady based on the theories that we had learned. But in reality, this was a human being. And she, you know, her experience was much more multifaceted than we could ever imagine. Um, and as a result, we, we had to sort of take a step back and say, okay, well, this is a human that we're supporting and we need to listen to her and let her guide us in understanding what it is she needs. Um, so I think that one of the major things was for us to be in a position of leadership because essentially we were leaders and to take a step back and say, okay, well, this person is experiencing their reality. Um, so it's important for us to step back and listen to what, they what they're saying they need, if that makes sense. Mm, that's great. So for the educators that are in our Masters of Education program who are thinking after this Masters, should I go and do a doctorate? What would you say? Well, <laughs> well so a doctorate, so I took a little bit of time off between my doctorate and master's. I'm sorry, my master's and doctorate. Um, and part of that was I wasn't necessarily sure about what I wanted to study. Um, and I'm a very introspective person. So in studying my master's, I explored, as I said, how our education shapes. Uh, I'm sorry, how education allows us to be, or promotes us in becoming who we are or prohibits us from uh, becoming who we who we are who we will be, um, and that really opened my eyes to the need to sort of t take a step back, get some work experience and real world work experience, so I can better understand myself and better understand what it is I wanted to study and how I wanted to study it. Um, so I think that some people are a little bit uh, more experienced uh, in terms of their career. You know, because some people don't pursue their master's right, right after undergrad. I did. Um, some people get, you know, work experience and things like that. So if that's the case, I would make sure that or I would encourage people to understand fully or have an appreciation, maybe not fully. I would encourage people to, to have a greater appreciation of what it is they want to study before pursuing their doctorate. Because once you pursue your doctorate, it's sort of final. This is what I'm putting my stamp on. This is the career path that I'm going to take. Uh, this is the way I'm going to study it. Uh, so sometimes there, there needs to be a level of maturity associated with that um, that allows you to make those decisions. Yeah, that's good. I've managed to cram my four-year PhD into seven years. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's through, through really discovering what it is that I was trying to do with my PhD. So I totally get that. That's really, that's really good wisdom. Thank you for that, Clive. 
I'm just, I'm quite caught on these things of how to win being a team player, being able to defer to others and receiving feedback. I think those four, those four things that you mentioned are really quite powerful and can work in an elementary primary classroom, can work in a secondary, can work in a college setting as well, can work in industry or in work vocational programs to really set people up to function as an actual person and become mm -hmm. a lifelong learner and look for those learning opportunities. For the educators that we have in our program, Clyde, who um, may be aspiring leaders, because we have teachers, uh, heads of department, principals, directors, what's some, some tips from Dr. Clyde about how to really position yourself if you're on that leadership, leadership path? Well, so I think one of the biggest things about leadership that I've learned is if you haven't failed, you're not really truly a leader um, because you can't coach people through because in reality, um, Failure is a part of life. And if you yourself as a leader, you know, haven't failed and understand what it means to, to sort of come out uh, from, come out on the other side, um, it's really difficult to coach people through. Like, so, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, there's, a, there's a saying that, uh, that resonates with me. Uh, I can't teach what I don't know, and I can't lead where I won't go. If I've never failed, it's, it's very difficult. I won't say impossible, but it's very difficult for me to teach people and mentor people how to mm -hmm. navigate failure. Uh, so one of the, pro one of the programs, uh, so currently one of the programs that we do, uh, we mentor, we're working with a high school sophomore. Uh, I think there's a group of eight sophomore, uh, high school sophomore. So second year students. Um, and one of the projects that we had was what we called a planned failure, right? A contr planned control failure. So essentially what it is, is we give them a project where we know, in fact, they're going to fail. We don't give them enough time. We don't give them enough resources. We don't give them enough anything. And they're expected to pull this thing off in about three weeks. Um, now, we don't do it publicly. So that way we don't destroy their confidence. We don't destroy their mm, self-esteem. Nice. But we create an environment to where they can, they can build this thing. We know that this is not going to be fully developed. And we have a small group of people that are going to be supportive, but at the same time challenge them. So that way, the next time we meet with them, we can have a conversation around, okay, so what do we learn? How do we prepare next time? And then the following year, we have the same program. Um, but again, they're a little bit more prepared. The third time we have it, they're fully prepared to tackle that, uh, to tackle that, um, that activity. So we're building, we start off with failure and then we sort of work our way up to success from failure. One of the ways that I really learned this and one of the things that really drove me home, drove it home for me was, uh, so as I mentioned, I was a college football player and my first year in college, we won three games. We lost nine. So we won three of the first, I think four games, and we didn't win a game for a season and a half. So my first year, we won three games. We didn't win a game for the rest of that season. We didn't win a game at all for our second season. Wow. Right? Zero and 18. We got a new coach, a couple new players, but essentially the same team. And we were able to turn that team around and win nine, and go nine and three, meaning we won nine games, mm. lost three games. We won our conference. And we won a bowl game. Wow. What I learned from that was 
with the same group of people and the right leader, we were able to navigate and become successful. We were able to sort of garner success uh, from what we thought was a failing, uh, uh, sort of a group of failures, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And that really the way that I approach education, my career, and all these other things, because I know what it's like to fail. So therefore, when I'm mentoring young folks, I can speak to them about failure and how to come out of failure. And I, whereas I think a lot of educators, from my experience at least, a lot of educators approach um, mentoring and all those other things from a place of, oh, success begets more success. So. That's a great example about the football season. That's really great. Dr. Clyde, I really want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you um, so everyone knows you're, you got up at 2 o'clock in the morning to do this for us, to contribute and share your experience, share your wisdom. And I love what you said about um, learning from failure. I just summarized it as failing forward and uh, made a Absolutely. whole lot of notes. For it. I just really love that. And I think it's going to inspire our, our watchers and our listeners. Thank you for your time. I do wish you all the very best. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. I mean, I really appreciate this opportunity and I, I hopefully, uh, you know, there's a couple uh, pieces of information in here that will be beneficial for some of the future leaders that you're working with. More than a couple. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>